0: Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories, and how they're told. I'm Sam, joined by Webb. Andy continues to be out on paternity leave, continuing to try to be a responsible father. We were trying to be responsible on this holiday weekend. I hope you were responsible on this July 4th weekend. I, I didn't see any, any accidents, any firework-related accidents come across the, the ticker from you, but uh, I just wanted to make sure you're, you're doing good.
1: I'm doing good. Uh, let me ask you this. Did Ezra Miller have any accidents this weekend?
0: <laughs> I was I was actually going to to make that joke. I was going to say we Googled like Ezra Miller plus fireworks and I didn't see anything come up. No, No children or innocent women were harmed in the making of this holiday weekend. He's laying low either in Tokyo or in Germany, depending on what news source you follow. So yeah, the Ezra
1: Miller watch <laughs> I... continues to be on high alert right now. The saga continues. I I actually don't know if that's a good thing. I'm a little more nervous when it's quiet in the Ezra Miller world. Like, what's he planning next? I found this article the other day. I think by the Independent. It was just like a total rundown of everything that Ezra Miller's been involved with in the past <laughs> oh, like gosh. six months. And dude, some of this stuff I I wasn't even aware of. Like, hit, hit he apparently, yeah, he apparently busted in someone's hotel, like some couple's hotel room uh, in Hawaii, and threatened to quote unquote bury them. Oh my god. <laughs> And a lot of his instances seem to stem from the fact that, like, he always goes into, like, public places or, like, someone's apartment and then asks to smoke. He wants to smoke a cigarette, and when they tell him no, he just goes berserk.
0: Like a menthol <laughs>
1: cigarette or, like, a, a doobie? No, I think I think these are just cigarettes, yeah. Oh, my gosh.
0: You probably have, like, a million bucks in the bank account. Just go buy a a cigarette, come on, dude.
1: Well, no, no, it's not that he. It's he's not that. It's that he's trying to smoke their cigarettes. It's just that like he comes into people's houses and he'll be like, "Hey, is it cool if I smoke in here?" And then they're like, "No, nah, man, I'd rather you do that outside." And he just goes nuts and then threatens oh. to kill them. It actually got him an acting role. I read this one. I forget what movie it was, <laughs> but apparently he came into an audition and was like, "Hey, dude, can we do this outside? Because I want to rip a cig." And the casting director was like, "What a prick. He's perfect for this role." <laughs> That's amazing. Like that
0: that was the director's words verbatim. I did see a a recent Ezra Miller film come out on HBO as the new Crimes of Grindelwald, or whatever it is called. The not crimes of Grindelwald, the Harry Potter series, the Fantastic Beast series. Um, it is hot garbage. I have said this before and I will continue to say it that the Crimes of Grindelwald is probably the worst modern screenplay of any film that has that level of studio budget and and things of that nature like that you know like axum or the room or anything like that they, they don't have the the resources to n- make something good the crimes of grindelwald have no business ever being that bad right and this movie is really bad as well there's i won't i'm not gonna get into spoilers because it did just come out like two weeks ago um so i guess i'll say that the first two scenes are so poorly written that by the end of the scene they don't matter at all like, the outcome of the scenes, something happens to where you find out that the whole scene was just was just to, like, show you that somebody's evil or to show you ma- that magic exists. There's no—it doesn't further the plot at all. Well, I guess—actually, you know what? To avoid confusion, I'm just going to tell you what it was. <laughs> There's a character that's mopping a floor inside a, a shop, and they see outside their window this lady being harassed by three guys— and they're basically just like, Ezra and Miller. it's really, yeah. Uh, actually, you know, like I said, Ezra Miller is in this film. He's, the, you find out in the last movie that he's the son or the brother of Dumbledore, the secret brother of Dumbledore or something. I don't know. He actually killed in the first movie and then they decided that he was alive in the second movie. So I'm not going to get into that. But anyways, so anyways, guys in his shop, he sees a woman is being harassed and three guys come up and start harassing her in just the most campy dialogue. It's like, hey, lady, what do you think you're doing out so late, looking all nice? And then she looks up and is like, oh, you're real tough. And he says, oh, I'll show you tough. I mean, it is it is that bad. It sounds like the dialogue that would be in a cut scene for a Nintendo 64 fighting game, like the Castlevania fighting game. It's just, like, so bad. But anyways. This, um, is, a, this is a Harry Potter spinoff? This is the Harry Potter spinoff that just came out. Um, I'm so checked out on that. Well, anyway, so these three guys come up and start harassing her, And then the shopkeeper, who's a main character, runs out with his broom and is like, hey, guys, stop, and is, like, taking up for her. And then she pulls out a wand and does the spell to the back of one of them, the spell that makes them uh, stiffen up like a board and then fall over. She does that, and it basically shows that she's a badass wizard. And he's like, oh, you're a wizard. Well, then the guys all get up, and she's like, Thanks, fellas. And they kind of like, oh, you didn't have to go so hard on us. And you you're quickly realize that they know her, that they were in on it. And then she walks up to the shopkeeper and is like, hey, I've got something to talk to you about, you know, because I'm a wizard and there's like something wizardy happening. Well, what was the whole point of her getting those three guys to pretend to accost her? <laughs> There's no point to it because she just walks up to the guy anyways and is like, hey, I know you know about wizarding even though you're a muggle. I'm a wizard. I need to talk to you about something. Why doesn't she just walk into the shop and go talk to him? But instead, they have to have this aside to have her be like a sassy, cool wizard and shoot a guy. And then they just get up and are like, oh, man, you really shot me with that spell. I didn't think you were going to. She's like, oh, yeah, thanks for playing along, guys. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's my cousin or something. And you're just like, what was the whole point of that five minute scene other than to just to show me magic anyways oh, it, dude there's it, there's literally three three of the first four scenes are like that where it doesn't matter at all what you see in the scene because it immediately the context of what happens is completely irrelevant so it's very seldom do I turn off a high budget film within twenty minutes like I won't even really do that with Star Wars even though some of the last star Wars films have been pretty bad um but I just couldn't help myself. I was like, "This is not. I'm never going to finish this film. Cannot, literally, cannot
1: get through it." Once you've had a trilogy, any sequel past that, I'm usually checked out on. That just they start beating a dead horse, and and particularly with Star Wars and Harry Potter. Like at this point, it's just like, man, I've seen it. I love the originals. Count me out, dude. Hate to sound cynical, but. Anytime, anytime that you get
0: a person that has so much control over their art. We, we talked about this with the Star Wars films and George Lucas and the prequels. I think the Harry Potter films are suffering the same thing where you have somebody that's had a tremendous amount of success. And then, like I, I don't know what sort of critique partners they have, writing partners are around them. But famously, both George Lucas and J.K. Rowling had like a tremendous amount of creative control like all creative control for both like the star Wars prequels, as well as these last Harry Potter films that have not been very good. And you can go look up online and read about all the dialogue changes that were made in the original star Wars. And then that, that that did not happen in the prequels and it turned out really bad. So Again, it's just kind of a lesson for writers: You're like always have critique partners, critique partners, writing partners, people that can read your your alpha or your beta scripts. Like that's super important, no matter
1: how good you get. Um,
0: so yeah, kind of like a
1: similar. It's it's kind of like a similar trend with like great bands, like bands that start off and just launch into the stratosphere. You know, those creative juices, like either they tap out after like a decade or like fifteen years, or They just get so successful that they're surrounded by yes men and there's no one there to like put them in check. And so what happens is you've got like these three or four great albums at first. And sure, like people are going to buy the rest of their albums or read the rest of these books for the next 20 some odd years. But like, let's face it, man, it's the magic is gone at that point. Absolutely. In Harry Harry Potter's case, the magic is literally gone. Yeah. And and I, I I, I worry.
0: Yeah. I worry because. You know, with Harry Potter, we're Stranger Things as kind of go, dealing with the same thing, where, like, the first season was really good, and then it's gotten worse ever since then, but you still have a cabal of fans that are like, this is incredible, this show is iconic, and then that forces studios to invest more money and more time into making just sequels of the same series that hasn't been good in a while. It's not just making a bad product, it's taking away opportunities from other good creative things from happening, and I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying the Duffer brothers from stranger things couldn't make a good story or that JK Rowling couldn't do it, but it's just the matter of like creative control and getting bouncing your ideas off people and just uh, having the same hunger to edit your pieces that you probably would have if you had one shot as opposed to if you've already made it big. So um, anyways, so,
1: I kind of want to piggyback off that still a little bit. I don't, I don't want to drag on our intro too much. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I believe Andy's talked about this, you know, in a recent podcast um, before his paternity leave, but Man, we got a problem in particular with like the script we're going to talk about today, which is like absolutely a movie I love. This story is timeless. This movie absolutely does not get made today. Hollywood, like yep. any other industry, is focused on their bottom line. And like today, with the international markets and China and stuff, you're seeing the major studios release less and less movies. Um, you know, a story about an aspiring ranch hand in East Texas is not going to do anything in China and so why make that movie but you know you've got the brand of of Harry Potter and you can just keep producing you can produce 8 movies a year instead of 20 if you're Warner Brothers and you're going to go in with like a 150 to 300 million dollar budget for each of these 8 movies you're making with the return with the hope of getting like a billion dollar return at the box office and man in my mind we're losing a lot of great stories with that with you know with the way things are, are run these days out of hollywood it's really really disheartening
0: i mean two movies last year that did really well that both had awards uh, or were nominated for awards that are completely different in that regard is like spider-man no way home versus the power of the dog the power of the dog is kind of a rarer breed where it's a very human story it's slower paced it focuses on like three or four main characters there's no quote unquote action per se whereas far for home is a much more easy easily digestible story because it it doesn't follow um well I think I think the big thing actually I, I won't get into like all the cultural stuff but I think the biggest thing is that the CGI fest I think that the CGI fest carries throughout cultures throughout demographics things like that and so it's easier to make a CGI and not not easier but it's easier to distribute into different markets the CGI fest. Um, And something like River Runs Through It, like you said, this is the kind of film that would be released on like Fox Searchlight Pictures and maybe be a, a limited release, or maybe would go straight to Netflix. Probably more like straight to Prime. I feel like Prime is into the kind of movies like this. But yeah, River Runs Through It is what we're talking about today. Came out in 1992. If you could say anything about its marketability, it is that it is a very flat plot line in a sense that there's not a clear climax and the resolution kind of is is slowly reached, so to speak. It's a story about life, and it kind of meanders throughout the course of about 10 years, but primarily takes place in, in about one or two years. But, you know, I, I, read, I went ahead and read some of the bad reviews that we're going to go over later, and a, a common complaint is one that I can see where they came from, which is it is at times feels boring if you're not paying attention because it is very character-driven, like I said,
1: very linear in plot line. I was surprised. I I actually hopped on to read some reviews too, and when I looked at this on Rotten Tomatoes, dude, this movie got an 80% rating from the critics and an 83% from the audience, and that, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but that just blows my mind, man. I honestly, this is perhaps my favorite movie of all time. Um, wow and for me yeah it's it's personal you know like I I grew up with two brothers this movie's about brothers it's it there's so much I like about this movie um and shouts out to Andy's mom the Reverend Gotelli, because I know this is her favorite movie as well but man I just I think this movie is so incredibly killer River runs yeah, through it great. based off of uh the novel written by Norman McLean which Norman McLean McLean right
0: I, I was right? actually
1: wondering that McLean, McLean It's a Scottish name um, Would McLean. you call this Is this a novel Or is this a memoir Or a novella I mean it's based off His it's an, life it's story Technically it's a novella It's in a
0: collection Of short stories uh, Comes with a river Runs through it And then Logging and pimping Also your pal Jim And then This other one called The Ranger The Cook And The Hole in the Sky Which I believe Was also made into a film um, Are those but, all In the same work Like those are
1: all The yep. same book Really
0: yeah, wow. it's a collection of short stories. River Runs Through It is the longest of the stories. Um, it's about 230 pages long. It's interesting. It's uh, first-person detached, and it has a lot of description, narration, almost no dialogue. I don't want to say almost no dialogue. Maybe it's very little dialogue, almost the least amount of dialogue that I've seen in a novel, which I think is, a, is it was a wise decision and an obvious decision to leave the narration in the in the film for that reason. And it is such a personal piece by Norm MacLean, who, I don't know if I said this, but he's the main character in the film, and he's also the guy who wrote it. This is an autobiographical story, and almost everything that happens in this story is based on fact. This is how he meets his wife. This is how his, you know talks about his brother and his brother's struggles and how his brother passed away. All of that is included in this, in this story, so it is extremely personal. There's a few small details about... What he went through as a child and then his brother's passing, that is a little bit fabricated for the purposes of the film to make it a little bit more digestible for the audience. But for the most part, the novel is almost identical to the
1: film, even down to some of the lines which we'll get into. A couple couple things I want to point out. Um, This is the movie that kind of infamously launched Brad Pitt's career. Um, It was directed by Robert Redford. You mentioned that it was obvious to leave the narration in, but I actually saw a... Speaking engagement, I guess this was at a screen, private screaming in the movie where uh, Robert Redford was up talking. And the story about getting this movie produced and the decision to leave the narration in is kind of interesting on its own. Basically, Robert Redford reads this book. He's in love with it. He wants to make it into a movie. Norman McLean, who had been a professor for years and years at the University of Chicago and was from Missoula, Montana. This is his story, his family story. Uh, Robert Redford went up to see him. And basically this man who is kind of in the twilight years of his life did not want this movie to be made. And so Robert Redford had to cut him a deal. And he was like, look, man, do me this favor. Let me come see you again in two weeks. Actually, you know what? Let me come see you three times. I'm going to come see you again. We're going to debate this again. And then I'm going to see you two weeks after that. And I want you to just think about this. Um, And I guess Robert Redford slowly won him over. But then it took them two years to write the screenplay. And Robert Redford talked about reading the screenplay and doing the rewrites and how something wasn't sticking and what they realized is like they have to leave the, the prose or the narration in yeah, to make it click, which if you'll give me the courtesy as we walk through this, I actually want to read some of that narration because it's one of my yeah. favorite parts of the movies and I think it's what really, really makes this powerful. It's the best part of the movie.
0: In my opinion, and we'll get into that, yes. but the narration yes. the narration is taken directly from the book or at least what I could see because, again, I, I read the novella and the first lines, which are incredible, the last lines, those are all part of the book. A lot of the narration that I saw in the movie was from the novella. There's also some dialogue that was taken almost directly from the novella. There are some lines, and we talked about this a little bit with Stand By Me, there are some lines that are not in the novella that are in the screenplay that are awful that are really bad dialogue and it is it's like nails to a chalkboard when you see it you're just like oh my gosh it, it feels like a the the screenwriter just does not know how to write dialogue or maybe they did it in the last minute the the screenplay writer is richard friedenberg and this is he he wrote two screenplays this one which was nominated for best adapted screenplay and then he also Got an Emmy award for a, uh, tele- a like a straight to television show on Hallmark Channel called Promise, but that's literally all he's done. Um, at least in at least in the film world. Do you know what this movie lost a Best Adapted Screenplay to? Can I guess? Yes, yes. Best Adapted Screenplay. Because okay, so that year, nineteen ninety two, I think Dances of Wolves won, right? It, uh, no, best dude. Film. Best but, film. But but it was Dancing with Wolves, I believe. I think that it was uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. No, dude. No, of, of Mice and Men?
1: No. Do you want to keep guessing? No, I'm done. It's that damn movie that me, you, and Andy had no idea what it was called Howard's End that we talked about. <laughs> Do you remember that? We were like, what the hell yeah. is Howard's End? Like, we have seen every movie from the 90s. And, dude, I actually read the plot to Howard's End, and it totally looks like. Uh, movie that would have come I mean I'm sure there's some Howard Howard's in fans and maybe this is a really good movie they're not listening to our podcast yeah dude it looks so boring it looks like a lifetime movie I mean it's like about sisters at the ter- in Britain and like the turn of the 20th century or something oh <laughs> it sounds awful like <laughs> well to be fair we're, we're, we're doing here. a story about the turn of the 20th century
0: but hey is, is, is are, the actor from Stan is the shitties actor from stand by me in that film
1: no but you know what interesting stand by me connection to this movie is that uh, I don't know if he auditioned or not, but the role that Bat- Brad Pitt plays as Paul, River Phoenix was actually like heavily considered, or was the forerunner for that role. I don't know if River Phoenix died, I'd have to check his, the day that he died at the Viper Room, I don't know if he died before this movie was in production or released, but it was kind of around the same time frame, and who knows what could have happened, man, if River Phoenix would have played Paul in this, um, we might not even know of Brad Pitt, Um it did win best cinematography though. It got nominated this movie got nominated for best music original score, best adapted screenplay and it did win best cinematography which let's be honest dude like the cinematography in this movie movie is epic.
0: Yeah, it's great. So, um a few more things I wanted to go over as far as uh just the numbers. So we like to go over the numbers here and talk about what a success this film was. I had a budget of 12 million which seems super low considering i guess just like the the scenes that they were filming at and and some of the there's there some scenes where they go in and look at some of the uh they'll go into they'll go on location to bozeman and they'll look at these these cabins as speakeasies and things like that and that seems like it would be a lot more money in 12 million but then they got 66 million in the box office so uh definitely a commercial success filmed largely uh, on location in montana Although this story takes place in Missoula, this was filmed largely around Bozeman. They filmed it on a different river. It's not on the Blackfoot River. The Blackfoot River, when I looked at photos, is not quite as mountainous in certain areas around Missoula. But So they went and filmed it a little bit further uh, away in so, Bozeman. It's a yeah, mountainous.
1: Shout, shouts out because literally about a month ago, I went on a family vacation to Big <laughs> shouts Sky Shouts out Man. to you. Yeah, shouts out to me. I was actually... Right by the river in Big Sky, the Gallatin River, is where they filmed a lot of this movie. Um, me and my little brother went fishing on the Madison River one day, hooked into some monster trout, in case you can't tell. I like to fly fish. That's probably another reason. This movie is actually probably subconsciously what got me into fly fishing in later yeah. years. I saw this movie as a kid and absolutely loved it, loved the art of fly fishing. But, uh, yeah, this movie was filmed like outside of Bozeman. A lot of it was shot on the Gallatin River— and I will say this: the Blackfoot River. Just talking to people in Montana, it's supposed to be a really, really beautiful river, and it's a river that a lot of people like to fish. Um, and, yeah. and I think people float down it too, man. It's it, it's grizzly bear country. It's really a lot of lot of bears in that area. We were kind of away from it, so didn't get to see the Blackfoot, but it is on my bucket list for sure.
0: Yeah. One more thing about the about the fly fishing. Um, there's a lot that I could say background for this for this novel because there's so much that happened outside of it, but. I watched this video, Jeremy Wade, the guy who does River Monsters, talked about, um, he did one of those GQ series where it talks about the realism of different films, and he was talking about the realism of fishing of different famous films, and he talked about how realistic a river runs through it is for fly fishing, and turns out that it is incredibly realistic. I mean, you've been fly fishing a bunch in Oregon and Montana, and then we went fly fishing in Oklahoma together, and it's... I was interested to see how realistic he thought the Brad Pitt scene, the the ultimate scene where he 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 nabs the big fish at the end of the film, was. And Jeremy Wade said, "It is incredibly realistic. That's exactly how you would catch a fish in those waters. Against that, like you know, it's it's not unheard of that somebody would." reel out so much and let the fish go to, go down almost like a rapid and then follow them into the rapid so i thought that was kind of cool so we'll, we'll get into that more uh, i don't want to
1: get too far ahead of things so why don't you kick us off let's get into it. a river runs through it based off norman mclean's memoir of the same name this movie focuses on the mclean family which is a scottish american family living in missoula montana the the patriarch of this family is the reverend john mclean he's a presbyterian minister wait
0: wait is his name really john mclean
1: yeah 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 it is (laughs) uh yeah kind of crazy right
0: yippee-ki-yay mother (laughs) yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. so john mclean and his wife they've got two sons norman and paul norman is the older brother and paul's the younger brother shouts out joseph gordon levitt who plays the older brother in the scenes when they're younger yep um he's super
0: young he's like 10 or something yes really young it's awesome
1: So basically they're taught, uh, they grow up in this deeply religious household and they're taught to, you know, a love for fly fishing from their father. And I love the opening, the opening scene of this movie shows an old man, you have no context of who he is, but he's out on the river. And the opening lines, the narration that's actually done by Robert Redford says, long ago when I was a young man, my father said to me, Norman, you like to write stories. And I said, yes, I do. Then he said, someday when you're ready, you might tell our family story. Only then will you understand what happened and why. And, and that, that right there just kind of hooks you in. And he goes on. He says, in our what, family, what's the, there was... What's the... Oh, yeah. Go yeah, ahead.
0: sorry. That's the first line of the novel, and I thought you skipped over it. So
1: no, 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 no. It's, it's great. He goes, in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of Great Trout Rivers in Missoula, Montana, where Indians still appeared out of the wilderness to walk hockey tonks and brothels of Front Street. My father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman. And though it is true that one day a week was given over wholly to religion, even then he told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen. And we were left to assume, as my younger brother Paul and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen and that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. Hmm. And And I love this scene where he picks up the rock and he explains to them, he goes, long ago, rain fell on mud and became rock half a billion years ago. But even before that, beneath the rocks are the words of God. Listen. And the narrator says, and if Paul and I listen very carefully all our lives, we might hear those words.
0: So two things there. Um, I love the line about the lines being blurred between religion and fly fishing. I think that's something that, I don't know if this is uniquely father and son. It could be it could be parent, child. But I, I think there is, when you, when you watch this movie and you, you are an athlete and you connect with your parent. As an athlete in a certain sport, you can relate to that. Um, for me, it was golf. For some of my friends, it was it was football or soccer or tennis, um, where they like they got really into that sport, and their their father or their mother was also into that sport. I think there's a unique parent bond that can happen with when you connect to like the sports and the outdoors in the same way. I I, I even will go as far to say that there's something unique about a father son relationship through sports because men are you know it's it's stereotypical perhaps it's sexist but there is something about like men relating to each other through a medium right we don't share our feelings directly and so to have a medium like fly fishing like golf like tennis or whatever it may be is something that people some people can relate to i can definitely relate to um and so th- i think that's something where are like in the first. 10 minutes of the film, you're either kind of bored or you're immediately hooked. I was hooked, personally, by that.
1: I, yeah, I agree, and I think one of the underlying themes of this movie is these two boys growing up, and, and especially the world that they grow up in, you know, it's a living in Montana at the turn of the 20th century, It's it's got its challenges, it's a hard place to live, and yeah. a lot of this is about them growing up, becoming men, not only becoming men, but wanting to be manly, and they both go about it in different ways. You know, yeah. they both reach manhood and their manhood is Brad Pitt's manhood is typical, you know, macho type of manhood. And Norman's manhood is much more well-defined by his stability, like his his yeah. family and the fact that he like doesn't color outside the lines, but he like does everything right. And he sets up life in a really proper way that makes him, you know, makes him the man that he, who he is. But yeah. the, Reverend, the Reverend McLean, their dad is kind of an interesting cat. He believes that. Man, like, left to his own devices just by nature is a damned mess. And that only by picking up God's rhythms could you regain power and beauty. To the Reverend McLean, all good things, trout as well as eternal salvation, come by grace. And grace yeah. comes by art. And art does not come easy. You, you need to remind me of that line later in the film. We'll get
0: back to that line. That is not, okay. that is not a one-off line. Something I watched. I, I watched it for literally the second time in my entire life earlier this week. And... And I caught onto something that I hadn't seen before. But I did want to make one th- one quick point about what you said about you know this was not a this was a rough place to live. kind of sneaks up on you as far as it being a period piece. And you know, as a child, you always think of the twenties and the thirties, which just primarily takes place in nineteen twenty seven. You always think of like the eighteen hundreds and nineteen hundreds being a little bit more stuffy, a little bit more conservative. But this movie um, kind of reminds you that hey, this is like. This is only like thirty or forty or fifty years after the Wild West. They're in Missoula, Montana. This is during Prohibition. There are speakeasies, there are brothels, there are there are lumberjacks that are out to like get in fights and go to these establishments. And as a kid, and even just rewatching it, I was I was reminded of that, that you have this idea of America or just the world being more conservative back then, but Missoula, Montana was probably a very rough place in, in, oh, absolutely. in the twenties.
1: I mean, on the one hand, it is—it's the Roaring Twenties. Um, it's also there is an element of this movie that's very nostalgic, very Americana, which you know is kind of a draw for me. It's like a very Norman Rockwell type backdrop, um, yeah, that harps back on just like a time and era that even if you didn't live in, you're familiar with, and maybe it didn't even exist like this, but that's just kind of how people remember it. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I absolutely love the the setting of this movie. Reverend McLean, he's the minister. He also teaches his sons about fly fishing. He actually teaches them on a four-count rhythm that casting is done between 10 and 2 o'clock, and they use his mom's piano metronome to, like, get this down. Each weekday after, you know, as the father's working on kind of his Sunday sermon, the boys attend the school of the Reverend McLean, as they call it. And this guy teaches literally nothing but reading and writing, which obviously goes on, like, both of his sons end up becoming writers, and yeah. as Norman says, being a Scot, he believes that the art of writing lay in thrift, which I absolutely love because I tend to be long winded. <laughs> you should see my work emails. <laughs> like I have to go hey, back. That's, and... <laughs> why,
0: that's why we're on a podcast, right? <laughs> we're trying to get that out of our system.
1: Sure. Uh, and I love the scene at the beginning of the movie. It actually shows Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's playing the young Norman McClain, and he's like basically being homeschooled and he's trying to write a short story and he keeps bringing it down to his father's study and the reverend keeps looking at it and he'll pick up his red pencil and he'll start marking it and he hands it back to him he's like good now half as long okay now half as long now half as long and so he this kid just keep he's like beating his head against a wall and so whenever his father finally approves of it he says good now throw it away and the boy quickly like, crumples up the paper, throws it in the trash, and him and his little brother Paul are off into the wilderness. And he goes on to narrate. He says, Despite all this, there was a balance to my father's system. Every afternoon, I was set free, untutored and untouched till supper, to learn my own, the natural side of God's order. And there could be no better place to learn that order than the Montana of my youth. This film is, is filled with the narration that is... I don't even call it flowery because flowery
0: in writing is is just a negative connotation but it is that poetic I think is a better way to put it and it does fill up a lot of the screen time as it'll show like a wide shot of these boys running towards the mountains as it's saying that and I think that could be a turnoff for a lot of people but it's so well done that it doesn't come across as like overbearing and it also matches the tone of the novel, where it is autobiographical that doesn't have a lot of lines. So I think there there are movies where I've said, This is way too flowery, there's way too much narrative, but I do think that this movie does a it does a great job of of you know, the dialogue's not really like that. The dialogue is pretty straightforward, but then the narration
1: is pretty is pretty poetic. So I it's it's goat narration. I, it, it is. And I think that, it truly like, is. that harping back onto the opening lines of the film Where he talks about his father telling him, you know, like, Norman, you're a writer. Someday, you know, you can write our family story because only then will you understand what happened and why. It's just the narration in this, man, it sounds like it's got wisdom just like packed into a powder keg behind it. The words in in the poetic nature, you could not, I, I don't feel like if you were 24 years old, you could write this stuff. Like this has to come from the pen of an older man who has been around the block a few times, if you know what I mean. But anyhow, it goes on to show the boys, you know, they are left alone in the afternoons to go explore the nature. Like, you know, there are Indians still on the frontier. There are bears. But their father's system is kind of a yin and yang. Like, they are expected to adhere to these strict Presbyterian principles. But in the afternoon, they are just let unloose to go, like, figure out the world for themselves. The natural side of God's order, as Norman puts it. I love the scene where it cuts to the street fight. Happening on on the streets of Missoula, and the boys are, you know, gathered around as these two men kind of duke it out. And and the narrator talks about like, man, we we understood that the world was a a very tough place, and we respected it. And of course, we had to test it. And then it cuts to Norman, the boy. You know, he's like seven. Joseph Gordon Levitt is in this fist fight behind some sort of mill there in Missoula. Yeah. And you got all. The, I mean, we've all been in this situation. You got a bunch of boys standing around. They're like. Get him, get him. And uh, they're trading shots left and right. And But you know what? Younger brother Paul has had enough. He sees his brother going toe-to-toe with this guy, and he decides to jump in and start swinging. And that's when Norman talks about Paul's toughness. He's like, man, his toughness came from someplace within. His younger brother Paul, yeah. he just knew he was tougher than everyone else. And then it cuts to
0: like arguably my favorite scene in the entire story, which is finishing the, the oats. Oh god, it's so it is good! Like, it's it is like arguably the best scene because it is it's. And this film distinctly doesn't have like too much dialogue, too much narration. But this scene in particular is a great example of storytelling with very minimal words, and it sh- it gives you so much characterization of these two young boys. Omeal scene, so take it away.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's basically you know they're gathered around family dinner. They eat their dinner at the table every night. And Paul, the younger brother, this is kind of when you start to realize just how stubborn he is. They're eating oatmeal. And Paul is absolutely refusing to eat it. And the Reverend McLean tells him, man has been eating God's oats for a thousand years. It's not the place of an eight-year-old boy to change that tradition. But despite how kind of intimidating um, and straight-laced that their father is, you know, Norman, the dutiful older brother, would have cleaned his plate, whatever. But Paul's just not having it, and he stays up. I don't know if it's all night. He, I mean, he just sits in front of the table. I guess the family finishes their meal yeah, and they like, bounce. Yeah,
0: it's it's like it's like a full day basically. He's just staring at the oatmeal. Yeah,
1: and he's got that. The kid's really cute. He's got that blank stare on his face. But he's sitting there and he's just he's absolutely refusing to eat it. And it shows the Reverend McLean in his study, and you can tell this guy's like he's having the you know real challenges of being a father, and he's contemplating like, man, what am I going to do about this? And Eventually, the Reverend McLean gives in. I mean, he comes back to the table. The whole family gathers around. They get down on their knees and say grace. And there's that great shot of as they're saying grace, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah, the older brother, looks over. Yeah, he looks over under the tablecloth and he sees Paul sitting there. You know, so so it's kind of the, the dynamic here is really interesting because the older brother is they're saying a prayer, you know, a very sacred thing, and they're all taking it seriously. But the older brother is kind of trying to figure out like who is my little brother? And he looks over and he sees that Paul has his, his little hands are clenched and his eyes are closed. And it's like, he's really, he's invested in this prayer that they're doing. Like he's not, yeah. it's not that he's a bad kid, but it's also just that like, he wasn't going to eat those damn oats. <laughs> he doesn't, yeah. you know, like it, he didn't give a it, shit.
0: It's such a, it's a theme of this film, right? Two themes there. One is that Norman, they talked about it towards the end of the film is he felt like he didn't truly know who his brother was in some ways. Uh, and that was a scene that kind of highlighted that. But then also, he's also trying to highlight that Paul with all of his vices, you know, at a ch- at childhood, it's not eating the oats, but then later on, it's stuff that's more serious for all of his vices that he could have a connection to God. I think that was one of the themes of the film. And that a lot of that plays into his fly fishing. It's a great scene. It has so much character to it. I, I absolutely love that scene. It's a, it is just like a perfect
1: example of minimal storytelling of minimal dialogue storytelling. So, so around this time, it cuts to like it kind of fast forwards a couple years and you catch up with the brothers when they're now like what I assume to be fifteen or sixteen. They're teenagers and they're hanging out with all their boys late at night. Their tradition is that you know probably around this time, Missoula's I would assume it shuts down pretty early unless you go to like a speakeasy. But these guys are pretty young, so they would always gather on the front steps of the library there in Missoula. And they're hanging out, and they come up with this idea that they are going to go, as they call it, shoot the shoots. Um, the way that they pre- present this idea, they're like, you can't shoot the shoots, Polly. You know, it's like this uh, this big waterfall that they have. This is part of the dialogue that I'm just like, this is so shitty. This is so yeah. bad. Uh, and, 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 and maybe in some ways part, part it, is it is. Part of it is
0: the acting. Part of it right. is the acting, but it's, it's for a movie that has so much great pros in the narration and then like you have the scene before we just talked about that has like minimal perfect dialogue and then Brad Pitt's like I want to go down the shoot and he's like well geez paulie that's dangerous you can't do that you're gonna die and just like with bad acting too it's, it's it's pretty bad you have to admit it's one of the few times I think that the screenplay stumbles where it's trying to create stakes and it could have done it in a so much better way but that is a ham-fisted attempts to try to create high stakes of them being like, hey, there's this scene coming up where they're going to do something dangerous and you need to know that it's dangerous. So they give these well, guys that are not, not well-trained actors these really shitty
1: lines, and it's just well, it's well, well, it's, it's play about devil's, two minutes. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit on that. I'm not going to disagree with you that maybe some of the acting by the supporting characters isn't great. I'm not unconvinced, dialogue-wise, that people didn't necessarily talk this way back in the 1920s but also this scene is a great catalyst for character development because you've already been introduced to the fact that Paul is very tough. He's very stubborn, but this is kind of the first time you see his, his wild side. What essentially happens is that they come up with this harebrained scheme, like late at night when they're hanging out with their boys, that they are going to go acquire a rowboat and they're going to go down this, I guess, famous waterfall that's that's down around Missoula, Montana. And all their friends are arguing with them that like, hey dude, you really shouldn't go down that waterfall. It's it is not safe. Paul, the younger brother, is like, no, let's do it, let's be fine. And Norman, the older brother, you can tell, does not want to do this, but he's not gonna let his little brother do it alone. Have them do this. They are walking along the side of a river where there's some boats,
0: and Paul looks at them and gives a, a smirk and is like, Hey, take like it out of the chutes. And they're like screw off, dude. You know, some dialogue that's more common in that time period. And then, as they start walking, Paulie runs over to the boat and starts out tying it. And they're all grabbing him back. And they're like, dude, no, you can't. Like, something like that would be a lot more natural and would feel more natural than like, your friend comes up with a bad idea and it's already established that these are some hooligans that are like, out late drinking. And then for one of them to be like, well, geez, Pauly, you can't go down that. That's dangerous. Like, that, what I'm getting at is there are ways to circumvent the shitty dialogue and acting that are a lot more realistic, and maybe maybe it involves putting the characters in different settings. But yeah, it's just different strokes for different folks.
1: Perhaps. I'm gonna concede the fact that the acting may be bad. I'm not gonna concede the fact that this is based off someone's life story and this is probably how this episode went down, where they were staying up drinking. You know how teenage boys are. They came up with a bad idea. His little brother was like, "Yeah, fuck it, I'll do it," and you know he he Norman basically went along with him to make sure his brother was okay, but. Getting back to the story, they end up going down this waterfall and it's a, it's a nightmare. Like they start going down the river, their other friends are following them. They're running parallel with the river. Everyone's hooping and hollering the rowboat that's made out of wood goes over this waterfall. And the next thing, you know, like both the boys disappear when the, their friends find them, they come down and they find the rowboat is absolutely shattered. So it's been wrecked to shit. Um, and they're, and they're looking for the McLean brothers and Brad Pitt's character, Paul, pops out of nowhere, tackles one of the other boys, throws him in the water. He is laughing. He's gassed up. He's having a great time. They look over at the older brother, Norman, and he's just sitting there with his head in his lap. And then they come home. They walk in. I love this scene. Late at night, I think any boy who, who has been in this situation, you sneak back into the house. Your parents are not asleep. They're up. You get that whole talk about, like, your mother's been up all night sick with worry and and so the reverend mcclain kind of already knows what they've been into and he's like boys where did you get this boat and they're kind of you know staring at the floor and they're like we we borrowed it and the the reverend mcclain goes you 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 borrowed it boys what have you Dude, done
0: this goes back to exactly the argument that i was making is that there's there are some instances where there's really bad dialogue that's not in the novel like the scene we just talked about this is in the the novel they walk in They've clearly screwed up. The guy just stares at them and he's like, what have you done? And that, that's it. That's all you need. You don't need this like back and forth. It's straight to the point. It's filled with character. It's its great acting. Love it. Love that scene.
1: Yeah, shouts out Reverend McLean because I, I love this character. Uh, he's a very stoic father. Um, he's very principled. You can tell he's a tough disciplinarian. He has certain expectations of his sons and they know what those are and so like there's not a lot that needs to be said this isn't the type of dad who's going to lose his temper or hit these boys he just tells them flat out like look i can't believe you did this you're going to pay off every cent of this boat and and there's a great dynamic with all of paul's problems with the way reverend mcclain raises his sons where they're both accountable these boys are accountable to each other you know norman was not going to let paul do this on his own even though he knew it was a stupid idea and when they get caught by their father Brad Pitt, the younger brother, is down to take the blame. Like he's like, it was my idea, Dad. Like I'll I'll work it off. So they're both yeah. you know really good-hearted characters. But just like boys, you know, it cuts to the next morning, and Norman's obviously had a rough night. He does not feel good about what happened. He's sitting there. He's about to make lunch, and Brad Pitt comes in, happy as a lark, and he sees him making the sandwich. He's like, No, dude, you're making that sandwich all wrong. And he starts, yeah, <laughs> he starts making like piling up this sandwich with mayo and and uh ham and he's like got his dirty hands all over it and finally norman just erupts he's like ready to kill his younger brother and they get into this fist fight in the kitchen where they're like trading shots and if you've grown up the only
0: fight they ever get in in their life as they as they go on to say and i and and one of the things that's cool about this this point as well as the last scene is it does a great job of characterizing paul because paul for all of his vices that we get into later for all of his, like, unnecessary risk-taking, he has two things. He is noble in terms of, like, his loyalty, like, him being, like, him stepping forward and being like, hey, I'll pay off every cent. Also, Paul does not know how to read people for shit. And this is something... This gets him into trouble later when they go in and they go to these speakeasies and these guys refuse to seat them or, like, they, you know, he wants to go join these poker games and they don't want him. Paul cannot read people, and that's a great scene that kind of highlight that of just... His brother wants nothing to do with it. And then eventually they they get in their tussle. They push down their mom, which should stop the fight, but it really doesn't. And then she refuses to take sides, says this is nobody's fault. Well, we that's all... a great
1: dynamic, too. I mean, I, I feel like that is very real, is the fact that like these two boys are fighting. They've got their own thing. Mom gets into the middle of it. Mom accidentally gets pushed over. And then the fight just escalates because it becomes like, you pushed you, her, you mom. son of a bitch. And they're like, Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, that is totally realistic. Like, you're into something that doesn't involve anyone else. Mom gets in the middle of it and then thus becomes, like, the catalyst for this whole escalation. That felt so real to me. And I love the – again, we talk about how good the narration is. When the narrator harps back on this moment, he said, that's the only time we ever fought. And then he has this great line. He goes, perhaps we wondered afterwards which one of us was tougher – but if boyhood questions aren't answered before a certain point, they can't be raised again. And when they go fishing the next day, Norman says that he sees something remarkable, which is for the first time, Paul broke free of our father's instruction, that four count rhythm into a rhythm all his own. And when it talks about their father's philosophy, how, you know, grace can only in a salvation can only come through grace, which can only be achieved through art. This is where, Paul starts becoming the artist for all of his toughness, yeah. for all of his brute and his habits for like getting in fist fights and stuff. When they get on the river, like Paul is the savant. He is the, he's the artist. And as he's a teenager, this is where it takes shape. Yeah. But,
0: and that's, and it gets into that a little bit later, but I did want to heart back on the, the, the earlier line about uh, grace can be only be attained through artistry or whatever it was towards the beginning yeah. of the film. That, that is a constant theme throughout this that I wanted to hint on is that, Paul being the artist that he is, there's a later line that I wanted to refer to, but I think part of what Norman McLean wanted to reference is that his his brother, despite his vices, had grace through faith in God and was a Christian. And uh, I think that that is one scene that kind of hints on
1: what will eventually become a theme about Paul's artistry, as you said. Sure, sure um there is kind of like an inner intermediary scene that they do with some still photographs which is one of the things i love about this movie it really gives you a sense of time and place the black and white photos that's like almost like a ken burns um thing that they'll kind of do every now and then so before norman goes to dartmouth they're obviously still teenagers and he talks about hey like world war one breaks out in i guess 1918 and when it happens it takes every 14 but
0: we don't send people over till like 1917 Right. Yeah. So
1: when it happens though, it takes every able-bodied man out of Missoula that just leaves the woods and the rivers to boys and old men. And during this time, you know, these kids are still developing and Norman goes to work for the forestry service. And he talks about like, I've never been more surrounded by mountains than, than this time period. He's hanging out with us. He says, men who are quote unquote, as tough as their ax handles. So he's, he's becoming his own man. And, His brother Paul, in the meantime, unwilling to leave the fish that he hasn't caught, just opts for a (laughs) job as a lifeguard so he can watch the girls (laughs) during the day and, like, pick up dates and then go fishing in the afternoon. Like, total skrekka. I love it. Um, And then Norman is 18, and he goes off to Dartmouth. His parents see him off at the train station. There's a really endearing scene where you know, the brothers are parting ways and Norman gets on the train and Brad Pitt kind of chases him down the train platform and then does like an all shucks and I am a fuck with hits you. you in your field, Yeah, just yeah, like, yeah,
0: yeah. Like like refusing to show a lot of emotion, um, which, again, plays into what is about to happen, which is a time skip, which I, unless it's Naruto, I, I hate time skips, okay? I, I'll give an exception to this. Um, animes can get time skips, but otherwise, this works because um, he goes to Dartmouth. Do you remember how long he was in Dartmouth,
1: by the way? Because I, I this, forgot. This fool's in Dartmouth for like six years. Six years. Did he just get an undergrad degree? He does two victory laps. When he goes off to Dartmouth and it starts showing the still photos again, and it's something about like, you know, if when I wasn't attending classes, I was giving my Blue Nose Brothers a firsthand lesson in Front Street Poker and it shows him wearing like this goofy ass hat and he's hanging out with the uh with all the boys in the frat house and they're just playing cards it's a very um i don't know something about it's very very endearing
0: so he comes back after 60 years and a lot of things change when he's gone particularly that his brother paul kind of distances himself from the family he talks about that like paul goes away he writes for a newspaper in helena um and he kind of is not really that communicative with the family. But when Norman comes back, he's kind of just like a uh, a learned dude who's kind of really annoying. He kind of reminds me of anytime you have a friend who goes and studies abroad, when they come back and they think they're like better than everybody else, there's a yeah. lot of dialogue that kind of points to that, um, particularly when he meets his, his wife later. Um, it's subtle, but I think that from a line perspective, as well as from an acting perspective, I do think that when Norman comes back, he acts just the right amount of like shithead. You know, it's it's great.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just like, if you had a friend that had been in Japan and you go get like a steak dinner and he's like, well, you know, they've got Wagyu steak in Japan. That's really good. This dude comes back and at every opportunity he gets, he's like, yeah, Yeah. I've actually heard colored jazz, the real McCoy, not, not the shit that y'all are listening to. So I love the scene where he first checks, he comes back to the house and he meets his parents and a couple things happen here. One, he's getting ready in his room, and his mother comes upstairs and he says, Do I look thin, Mom? And she goes, Do I look old, Norman? Um, one thing I noticed, like rewatching this, is that these people are supposed to be Scottish American. And I love the fact that this is a turn of the century story and they've got a lot of pride with that, like, old world connection. The actress, yeah. when she says this line, rewatching this movie, like, again and again, I start to notice that, man, like, they've really subtly got these accents down like they're supposed to be scott americans and the mother when she talks to him she's like do i look old norman like just the way she says it is like it has the faintest hint of like okay her parents grew up in scottish american type thing right right The the other
0: thing that's crazy about these scenes is that there's you know we're so used to in our culture if you didn't see your parents for six years You'd be hugging and jumping around at the airport, even if you like weren't even that close to your parents, I feel like. But in this culture that they were close to their parents, they had loving parents, but they see their boy after six years and they just like give him a handshake. and are like, my boy, I'm so proud of what you become. You're looking a little thin. And it's like,
1: yeah, okay, that is that how you're going to show your love to your child that that's how they did it back then. Man, speaking of the subtleties in the acting, like I know you were harping on some of these supporting actors for being shitty, but I really think like the subtle Scottish accent was great, and the fact that when Norman is coming back on the train for the first time, there's this great scene, and this is such like a micro mannerism that the Reverend McLean does, where he's like approaching on the train, he sees his parents in the platform, assuming first time he's seen him in six years, and his dad starts to wave at him, and then like composes himself. Yeah. It's really, really cool. It's um, subtle, yeah, yeah. It's super subtle, but you're, it's one of those things that you you pick up on if if you watch this movie a couple times. So I, I, I mean, I think the acting's really strong. So but... very
0: soon after they they have this scene where basically um, Paul doesn't meet them. Paul does not come back to the house and see Norman when he first gets home, which I'm, sh- you know, Norman doesn't really try to show it, but it affects him a little bit. So Norman goes and sees him in St. Helen and visits him in his office and. This is another place where you see that subtlety. And this is, I think this scene in particular, this scene, and then, and then a few scenes later when they go visit Lolo's are the two scenes where you really see Brad Pitt's acting as being phenomenal. Because in that scene, when Norman goes to visit Paul, he does the perfect job of like, he sees his brother. He wants to be excited, but he doesn't want to show overexcitement. And then also, There's that level of distance in the same way that, like, if you hadn't seen a friend for, like, eight years, you wouldn't exactly know how to act around them. And it's so subtle, but he kind of refuses to embrace Norman, and then he, like, asks if he wants to have a drink, and then Norman's, like, kind of scoffs and is like, oh, I don't want to, you know, drink this early as if that's like a really weird thing to do. And then you can clearly see that Paul's kind of embarrassed and he's like, come on, man. And then Norman feels weird that he doesn't do it. So he finally does. And you can tell there's like a slight disconnect. It's like, yeah, they're brothers that love each other and they're super close in age and all that stuff. But this six years apart has, has taken a toll on their relationship and they are not, at least in this initial interaction, they are not that close. And it, again, highlights the line that they give later in the film where it's like, I don't feel like I truly knew him. And uh, you you see that play out in that scene in that office of the hell in a newspaper.
1: Yeah, I think I, I mean, a little more to, to be a little more uh, surface level on this. I think it's important to point out that I believe this is now during Prohibition. So like he comes back, he's been on the East Coast and he's back in you know, the Wild West, he's back in uh, Missoula. So when he walks in, or in Helena now, so when he walks into the newspaper office, the cultures are probably a little bit different. Brad Pitt is comfortable pulling whiskey uh, at his desk. And Norman's kind of like, dude, it's a little early in the morning for me. But then, you know, he gives in and they quickly, they may not have felt that close, but they obviously quickly reconnect. After visiting his brother at the Helena newspaper, it cuts to Norman McClain attending a 4th of July dance where he meets... The lady who will eventually become his wife, Jesse Burns, yep. a flapper. Um, they have this great interaction where Norman works up the courage to go talk to this girl. He sees her from across the uh, dance floor, I guess. They've got some sort of you know jazz band playing, and Norman goes up and gets a couple drinks, and he starts again, like bragging about the fact he's been over on the East Coast, and like the people who are playing are just like these bum like locals that are kind of you know doing their covers of jazz.
0: This is one of the most realistic first date kind of interactions. He just totally falls flat on his face. She doesn't really reciprocate well and then so he has to save it and just basically ask her to dance and uh, it's a really weird interaction. It's it's a very realistic interaction I feel like.
1: I'm going to I'm going to butcher the name of this, but I, w- I wish I had written this down when he goes and brags to her he's talking about how he's seen god I've Louis Armstrong maybe uh I think in it's Greenwich Louis Village. Yeah. yeah, he's like I've seen, you know, what he described. he says color jazz, the real McCoy, not like Paul, you know, wiseman in the Klee Club Eskimos and the girl looks at him and she goes, My mother loves Paul in the Klee Club Eskimos <laughs> She and she's he, literally offended. She's actually offended at yes. him and he's just like Whatever, and he ta- and then he takes the drink from her, and like they kind of they end up they end up getting together. And I love when he calls her later at her house. Uh, the great scene where that's a great you know line he uses to get her to go out. He's like, "I was thinking I could come over and listen to the Klee Club Eskimos with you and your mother." And she reciprocates. Yeah. She laughs and is like, "Okay." Yeah. So this yeah. is where Norman hits it off with Jesse Burns, and shortly thereafter they go on a double date with Paul to Lolo, Montana, where the hot springs are. There's this speakeasy that has, like, illegal gambling and prostitution, except for Paul brings a Cheyenne woman, Montecita. He brings this, you know, Indian woman. In the novel, they talk about during this time period how Indians who weren't on the reservation typically lived on the outskirts of town by, like, a slaughterhouse or something. And the whole thing about Montecita, it it goes into this a lot more in the book, but she is, like, dude, she is a troublemaker. Like, she loves getting paul to fight over her for other men she's like the you know the the proverbial chick you take out who like flips someone off and then you've got to like go get punched in the face because of it but because paulie's a brawler like he lives for this and she's a great dancer they both are so i think one of the cool things about paul is that he does have that machismo and even jesse burns like when they go out on the double date and Paul and to get up and they start dancing very provocatively in the middle of this jazz club not only does Jesse kind of look at him with like you know some eyes she's like man you're she, it, she kind of implies like dude your brother really is a catch this guy's got a lot of vigor he's got a lot of personality yeah. but they're also causing a scene and eventually I think a fight breaks up a fight breaks out and first but not the last time Norman gets a call from the local jail and he's got to go bail yep. Paul out and he's sitting in there with you know this Indian girl just hung over from the night before and while he's there the desk sergeant basically talks to norman and is like hey dude like you know your brother's not just like get he's he says something like we've been picking up him up a lot lately and norman you can tell yeah. this is news to him and he tells him like dude your brother is behind um on his debts in this big poker game at lolo hot springs and you know this is not a place where people just get in fist fights, basically like you don't yeah. want to be behind in it's that it's a bad game. place yeah
0: and right. this is one of the few times that the movie takes a, a slight turn away from what they do in the novella or what I imagine happened in real life. Because in real life, he got pulled over for, like, drunk driving, like a drunk driving accident or something like that. Um, so the idea that he was with a, an Indian woman and he stuck up for her or whatever and then punched a guy, that kind of adds a little bit more nobility to, I think, what he got arrested for. But I think in real life... Or in the novella, um, he got arrested for just more, just general debauchery, right? Um, And we're about forty-five minutes into the story at this point, and this is really the first time that the stakes have kind of been raised. That you get a sense that there's some trouble brewing because before then, it's just really about like a story of two brothers kind of going about their life. There's subtle hints that Paul is like a risk taker, but it doesn't really get beyond that. And then it's this scene where it kind of establishes that like, hey, Paul is in in with some bad people. And so it kind of turns the narrative into, it adds more stakes and it kind of gets you a little bit more interested at this point.
1: After this, you know, it kind of shows Paul and Jesse's courtship brewing and eventually he gets close with her family. They're Methodist. That's like a big deal. They're Scots. But I, I do love something about that turn of the century where like everyone's denomination, even when they're all of the same religion, like they're all Christians is kind of, important as well as like their old world connections you know like they're all they're all scots in <laughs> her little brother jesse's little brother comes in town neil from southern california and this guy is who is just like a huge a piece of
0: shit <laughs> yeah this guy sucks
1: he comes off the train platform wearing like the sweater that's like uh over his shoulder over you know, his back tied. yeah and he kind of yeah, he says—I I noticed in the book he's apparently carrying, like, his mother's suitcase that's embroidered with her initials, and she cries when she sees it. And he hugs everyone, and then when he meets his sister's boyfriend, when he meets Norman, he's just kind of like, Hey there, boy! Like, oh, dude, you gotta talk about, like, yeah. something that would just set you off, right? And, and there's a lot of little things that this guy does to let you know that he's a complete piece of shit. Like, when they go back to the house, he's, he's bullshitting about how— uh, he goes surfing with God, I forget the actor's name, but
0: Ronald Coleman. He's like, I yeah, I like going yeah, surfing Ronald with Ronald Coleman. Coleman. And somebody's like, I wouldn't imagine Ronald Coleman on the waves, and you can tell there's like a little bit of panic in his eyes, and you're like, Oh yeah, it's a real Kodak. And just you can tell he's yeah. clearly bullshitting everything he's saying, and it's and there's even some narration about it about like oh he had to remind himself that he's a tennis star or whatever as he got off the as he got off the train, so he sucks. He doesn't like Norman. Norman doesn't like him.
1: There's kind of some great back and forth there. Like he it's it's apparent that like this guy does not, you know, really like fishing. And even Paul says something about like, dude, I bet you twenty dollars this guy's gonna show up with a can of worms. Like a red can he's very specific. He's like, he's gonna show up with one of those red can of worms. And sure enough he does. But they go yeah. to that uh that boxcar bar and the woman that he's sitting down with is is old Rawhide, who's just like this haggard local girl i guess from wolf creek and he's spinning all these tall tales about stuff he's done in the wilderness i think the one that he points out is this otter that he had to kill on the top of some sort of pass and like stick his hands in for warmth and old rawhide calls him out is like what's an otter doing that high up on the mountain like they hang up they hang out down you know in the mud and by the creeks um so the guy all this to say is like completely full of
0: shit um Again, it goes back to the acting. The scene that I love is is he's like, Norman's walking out as Neil is talking to this woman. And he's like, I'll see you uh, fishing tomorrow. And Neil does the perfect just double take of being like, what? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll so, see you. Yeah, whatever, sure. And you can tell he's that he's been, not like, interested at all what Norman's saying. He's not even paying attention to Norman. He doesn't give no. a shit about who Norman is.
1: No, he's been checking himself out in the mirror and like hitting the dog. He just... Everything about the Neil character is awful. So when they go... I guess when they finally go fishing, Neil has been staying up all night with old Rawhide, having sex and drinking, and he is just, like, super, super hungover. They take him down this one of the... uh, Yeah, yeah, Little Creeks, and Paul and Norman don't really have time for this guy. He falls behind as they're trailing down to the water, um, and they decide to kind of leave him. And when they come back, like, they go fishing. They come back, and... Neil is sunburned to shit and they have to take him home. And it's like a huge, basically Norman takes all the blame for like not watching after this guy who clearly didn't want to be there to (laughs) begin with. Full grown adult. There's a really insightful line, I guess around this point, I forget if it's when they're leaving the river after they drop him off at home. But again, like going back on how the brothers kind of lean on each other, like Norman's going to get in trouble. He's got to get this guy home. Now they have old Rawhide in tote too. And so Paul agrees to drive her home so that Norman can take his soon-to-be brother-in-law um, back to Wolf Creek and Norman is kind of venting to Paul and he's like dude, you know, basically like fuck this guy, like he doesn't like Montana he doesn't like fishing, like you know, whatever, and Paul says something that's sort of insightful, which is he says you know, he might like someone trying to help him.
0: Yeah, and that and that gets into one of the general themes, I think it's really the first time in this story it gets into one of the themes about you know, try and help people who need it, right? And it's something that, fasting, going forward a little bit, that uh, Jesse talks about when Norman brings Neil home and she references that. She's like, man, why is it the people that never want help or the or the people who need help the most always refuse it? And that kind of becomes a theme with, you know, at, at first you're kind of hinted that Neil is the real problem, but it's really uh, Paul that, that, that is that falls under that same category.
1: It's not long after that, like, Norman is in the doghouse with Jesse, and he kind of uses this as an opportunity to admit to her that he's gotten this letter from the University of Chicago that's offered him a teaching position, teaching English. And he basically tells her, like, he doesn't want to leave Montana unless she comes with him. And so she kind of embraces, and this is when we're led to believe that, like, okay, they're going to get married. Um, Yeah. And he goes basically home the next day. I love the scene. There's something great about paul that happens a couple times where like the you can tell the family doesn't expect paul to because of his habits like the parents don't want to talk about it but like they're not idiots they kind of know what's going on and anytime this is like classic little brother shit is like norman is a very dutiful son he's always on time he's always there um and whenever paul comes in late Or whatever everyone he lights up the room you know i love the scene where they're at some sort of picnic and norman's there and then paul rolls up in a car the party's already going on but as soon as he sees his mom he like picks her up and twirls her and it really kind of like yeah she she like is very fluttered she's like oh like can't can't believe it but then he immediately picks up horseshoes and he's playing with his dad and like similarly you know after this they're all sitting at the family table and it's just norman and his parents and paul i guess they've agreed to go fishing for like another time. And Paul just kind of comes in late and you can tell, like the parents are so happy to see him. And usually at these dinner tables, because Paul is so come and go, they're interested to hear what Paul's doing. He'll, you know, regale them with stories about like what he's been writing about up in Helena. Oh, I met president Cleveland. You should have seen him fly fishing. And this time they ask Paul, they're like, "Do you have a story for us. And he's starting to think about it. Norman kind of interjects. And it's like, I've got something for you. I accepted a teaching yeah. position at the university of Chicago and um, everyone's happy. Paul's, you know, uh, you could tell there's something weird. The acting but that Brad Pitt does is really yes, good. Yes, I was going I, yeah, I was to was interrupt yeah, you Yeah, what do about you this. think yes, about that? It's yeah. so good.
0: He does this little, like, you can tell that there's a bit of him that's, it, He it's like 90% he's happy. He's legitimately happy for Norman, but 10% jealous and taken aback. And maybe even sad that he's leaving. It's really, it. it we, I keep using the term subtlety. It is done really well. You just have to go back and see it. You have to go back and watch this scene, and you will have seen that reaction from somebody you love before. Um, right? Somebody you love reacting to good news that you have. Right? Where they're they're clearly happy for you, legitimately happy for you, but there's a part of them that's not happy for you, and it's hard to place exactly why Paul feels like that. But this is why Brad Pitt why his acting career took off after this film it scenes like that. So so Norman tells his brother he's going to go to teach at University of Chicago. And clearly he's happy for his brother, but it's clearly affecting him. But then they decide to kind of have one last hurrah. And, they, and uh, Norman goes and sees Paul at a bar. I think it's the same bar that they go to with Neil. And at that bar, Norman has... The Boilermaker, which is, I didn't realize this was a cocktail, but it's probably like one of the most disgusting cocktails in the world. It's just a beer, like a stein of beer, and then you throw a shot of bourbon into it and drink it at the same time, which sounds nasty. Norman's getting drunk, and his brother, Paul, who's clearly kind of affected by Norman's news that he's going to Chicago, has to drive him home, and he decides to make a detour. He goes to Lolo's. Um, now, we've been told about Lolo's uh, in passing by the police officer that that uh, Paul's got a debt there and even some of this ominous music plays in and it's like, Hey brother, I don't know that we should be going here. And I think this is another example, another scene that has just great wordless storytelling. They go into this bar and everybody's kind of got their eyes on them. Everybody's real quiet. It's a quieter bar than it should be, despite the number of patrons and Brad Pitt's character, Paul, again, just kind of has this like confidence that he always has when he enters the rooms but in this scene, people aren't really reciprocating to it, right? There's this there's this subtle nature. People aren't really replying to it. He's being really uh, happy-go-lucky, and everybody's just kind of like, okay, yeah, Paul, sure, you're kind of full of shit, you can tell. And Norman sees that. It makes Norman very uncomfortable, right? So then he goes, and Paul's like, hey, I'm going to go check out this gambling game. And Norman kind of, he's trying to see around these waitresses that are that are kind of getting his attention and then finally a fight breaks out in the back room where Paul's at you can tell that even through some of the, some of the very quiet dialogue that Norman can hear through the wall you can hear an, a bouncer say hey Paul I don't think that's a good idea right like I don't think it's a good idea for you to come back here so there's a lot of subtle hints that Paul has been here before that he knows these people they don't like him because he doesn't pay his gambling debts um, And then they go out to the car after they get kicked out of the bar. Paul throws the keys at Norman and he has this twinkle in his eye and he's like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go. I've got hot hands. I can feel it tonight. And Norman is just like, dude, we've got to get out of here. There's no way. And it's, so you've got the scene where they pick up Paul from the jail, but this is the first scene where you see like the total depravity of Paul's nature that you see firsthand that he's in with the wrong people that are truly a rough crowd. And that Paul has no chance that Paul, really is an addict right this whole scene where they go to this speakeasy is it is just it raises the stakes just a little bit more it shows you the total depravity of paul and maybe a little bit too late in the story it really shows you how much troubles paul's in um with these folks but it, it does a great job of just kind of showing the audience uh, just how bad these these folks are that paul's in with and uh it does it it does it through Again, minimal dialogue. You don't you don't hear like there's no there's no bouncer or any mob boss that walks up and says these really menacing lines. It's just it's a lot of people looking rough, looking at them hatefully, and then the scene where he gets literally kind of tossed out of the room. And that's all you need to know to know that these people are up to no good.
1: It's an environment you can tell Norman is very uncomfortable with. Um, like you said, like the characters in there are much more rough than anyone he would have met at Dartmouth or just hanging around Missoula. He, he kind of realizes for the first time the depths of trouble that his younger brother is into. Yeah. They agree, though, before before Norman drives off that I guess they're going to go fishing in the morning. So they, they do wake up, and I love you know one of the codes. They explain this to Neil when they take him fishing. Brad Pitt is big on, uh, there's three things we're never late for in Montana. Church, work, and fishing. I believe in the book it talks about how Brad Pitt's character, or Paul— Um, even though he did have this drinking problem, he never drank while he fished. Although it also says in the book that beers don't count as drinking, which I think is great, (laughs) but come hell or high water, whatever Paul gets into the night before he's going to be there in the morning. And sure enough, they all agree to meet up. It is both the brothers and their father who's gotten a little bit older now. Um, and they show this by when they go down to the river and they're approaching the big water. The Reverend McLean says, "Hey, I'm going to stay on the high ground and like kind of go down this way." And the brothers are, you know, suit for yourself. And Paul turns to Norman and goes, "Let's fish together today." So they go down to the river, and Norman is actually for the first time he's the one that's reeling him in. He keeps catching these big fish, and Paul is asking him, "You know, what are they biting on?" And comes across the river. Norman shows him what they're biting on. It's this bunion bug, and uh, Paul ties one up. And the next thing you know, Paul is. You know, he's being the artist that he is on the river. He's doing this thing called shadow casting where he's casting the fly line close enough to the water to, quote unquote, make a rainbow rise. And he hooks up with a hog of a trout. This thing's so big that when Paul hooks into it, he can't reel it in. And he actually ends up falling into the river and being pulled downstream. He's keeping that fly line tight. And he must go down, like, I don't know, like 100, 200 yards. And the dad and the brother, Norman, are just watching him, like, sort of in awe. Um, You know, this is a master of his element. And they start running down the river. And sure enough, Paul lands this just giant brown trout. There's some great narration in this scene where, you know, Brad Pitt stands up. And they'd, they'd agree to take a picture of him. And he's sitting there looking all proud. And... Norman McClain, Robert Redford narrating, says, My brother stood before us, not on the bank of the Big Blackfoot River, but suspended above the earth, free from all of its laws, like a work of art. And I knew, just as surely, and just as clearly, that life is not a work of art, and that the moment could not last. Which I love. And he continues and talks about, like, it it really, I think, Sam, to your point about how this movie possibly like, maybe the climax isn't good, or it wraps up too early, like, That narration literally leads into Norman saying, life is not a work of art. I knew the moment couldn't last. And he says, and so when the police sergeant awakened me in the morning, just before Jesse and I left for Chicago, I rose and asked no questions. And basically, uh, he gets the call that Paul has been beat to death with a butt of a revolver and his body is dumped in an alley. And Norman has to get driven home by the police and tell his mother and father this. Uh, Yeah really sobering scene. I do want to say I love how they don't show that. I know we talked about this when we were harping on jaws, but there's there's it's great that like
0: it's to- it would be totally no. unnecessary if they show him getting beat to death. We don't need to see that. We don't at all. No. Like it's not it's not the p- purpose of the film, right? There's very little dialogue in that whole scene where Norman has to tell his parents. In fact, like the mom hardly says anything. She just walks upstairs and then the father just basically oh, she turns around so and it's like, which which hand was broken? It's his right hand. And it doesn't really, I forget if they say this outright in the film or if it only says it in the novel, but the implication is that he went down swinging, that he was fighting off his assailants the whole time, that he refused to go down with a fight. That's why his hands were broken. He's throwing punches, right? So
1: um, funny you say that because that's kind of what I always thought. I was going to say novel. Is that what it says in the novel? Mm-hmm. Because yep. I have not, I have not read the novel. But it, kind of in prepping this, I'll say you know, there's that whole scene where the father, what he really asks, he goes, "Is there anything else you can tell me?" And Norman goes, "All the hands in his, all the bones in his hand were broken." Yeah, and then he, he, the he said, which, "Which hand? Yep. Which hand?" Yeah, I always thought that the right hand meant that he went down swinging. But one of the things that I had read was that the right hand was his fishing hand, and that it indicated that someone who killed him knew him like fairly well. No, uh, it, which, it, it said he went down swinging. Okay, that yeah, and that's kind of what I always thought. And that, in that, that definitely. You see, aligns you see with the father. The father's
0: character. right hand is facing the camera, and when he says that, his father like forms a fist a few times with his hand, kind of being like you know forming a fist. I think that kind of is another lead on to that.
1: The movie wraps up pretty quick from there. Uh, narrator talks about how like the father struggled to basically he he kept asking Norman in in the subsequent years if he had told him everything. And finally Norman says to his dad, he goes, Maybe all I really know about Paul is that he was a fine fisherman and the Reverend says, You know more than that. He was beautiful. Yeah. Um Two two which, things man, there. It just... i Yeah, I love that okay, there's something
0: kind of poetic about a a father calling their son beautiful. Like that's such a that's a word that we normally reserve for a synonym of pretty. And there's something about right. like a male labeling another male beautiful like their soul is beautiful that is very rarely used and usually used to mean a lot and then the other thing is that scene kind of ties into some of the first scenes that I was I was talking about where his, his artistry as a fisherman had transcended just uh, like something other than just being a fisherman that it, that it was, it was the only thing that he knew about his brother is that he was truly an artist and artistry is how you get grace and that kind of again ties into the idea that Grace is how you are a Christian in, in in
1: Presbyterian,
0: and so he is. He had the grace. He had the artistry. He had the grace of God. Uh, right. All I think biases.
1: that it's one of those things that one harping back on your point about the father's use of the word beautiful. Like you know, this is an old time family, right? Like this. This father was probably born in the nineteenth century, and he's he's very stoic. So for him to say something like that, it, it, there's a lot of weight behind it. I also think that you know you heart back onto these those opening lines about how their father's belief was that grace and eternal sal- or that eternal salvation is achieved through grace and grace is achieved through art. So despite all of Paul's problems, like one of the things that I think it's very obvious that the Reverend McLean really admired about his youngest son is that he was an artist when he was on the water. And there's a good tie-in for the theme of this movie when it cuts to the last. Uh, we kind of go from here to. Fast forward, Norman is sitting there with Jesse Burns, who's now Jesse McClain, and their kids, and they're at one of the Reverend McClain's last sermons, not long before his own death, Yeah, and Norman's narration kind of talks about how, like, Paul was... Even though we didn't talk about him from then on, like, Paul was never that far from my father's thoughts, and the father's sermon, you know, you're, you're asking God, we are willing to help, Lord, but what if anything is needed, for it is true... We can seldom help those closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or more often than not, the part that we have to give is not wanted. And so it is those we live with and should know who elude us. But we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding. I mean, talk about talk about putting a bow on this thing, dude. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the theme of the movie is that there are people that are going to reject help that you should still give them unconditional love, and that's all you can do. That's kind of the theme... That is what they're trying to sell in this movie. There's a, there's a lot of other, I would say, topics, but I think yeah. that's the theme, right? So let me ask you this. Um, we have wrapped up the film. I mean, it ends with one one other scene where uh, it shows the old man, McLean fishing, talking about his we life. Can, and he we says, can get
1: to that here in a second. Oh, we're yeah, let me, to let, let, let's let me. just say that. Let's yeah. just say this
0: because there's, there's a few cool lines. I don't know if you haven't pulled up, but it's it's really good.
1: I've got it pulled up. Do you mind if I read this? The narration of Norman McClain, Robert Redford, comes in and says, Now nearly all of those I loved and did not understand in my youth are dead, even Jesse. But I still reach out to them. Of course, now I'm too old to be much of a fisherman, and I usually fish the big waters alone, although some friends think I shouldn't. But when I am alone in the half-light of the canyon, all existence seems to fade to a being with my soul in memories and sounds on the big Blackfoot River in a four-count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise. Eventually... All things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time, and on some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters
0: yeah the i'm haunted oh, by water is so good because it's like a sudden stop of just like because it doesn't it almost doesn't even fit the tone of everything else um, dude it's, it's awesome.
1: so melancholy like it's he's so melancholy the, that idea of it like even his wife like paul the reverend like all the all the boys that he used to hang out with in the library like everyone's gone and this old man this dinosaur who's lived past his prime is still out there on the big Blackfoot, even though he probably shouldn't be um and he's still harping back on the lessons that the the Reverend McLean taught him about how to like listen carefully, and you you can hear the words of God running through the natural world. It really gives me chills.
0: We spent way too much time on the plot. We're not gonna have time to go do bad reviews or anything like that because there's not many. Sure. Honestly, uh, things that I maybe would harp on. Um, we talked about the dialogue, which I think at times very not many times, but there are times when it's clearly it's just the screenwriter who's left to his own devices, and they get they they try to get to the point way too fast little bit campy. A lot of the bad reviews, I kind of agreed with in the sense that a lot of them were like, man, this movie is kind of boring, and it doesn't get to the point. A lot of people said it was pointless, and I don't think it was pointless at all, but I do... I could understand why somebody, if somebody wasn't quite paying attention to Act 1, wasn't glued to it, that they would find it boring, and I can also understand why somebody wouldn't be glued to Act 1, and that is because it doesn't grip you. It, it, it really doesn't. I don't think... I love the scenes with the children. I think they were necessary. I think there's two ways you can do this, and, I, and, and I'd and i love to hear feedback on this. Um, one idea is you can do what Remember the Titans did. Remember the Titans opened with a funeral, and I think Big Fish did this as well. Have a funeral, be the opening scene. Have some of the narration be the funeral, and don't show who died, right? Because there's also a few scenes... With Norman, who you're supposed to—that implies that he's in danger. There's a scene where he goes down the rapids. There's the scene which we didn't talk about where he goes with Jesse when they when they go off onto the tracks and they go through the tunnel where the train's coming. Because you know that it's Norman narrating, you you know he's not. You know the train's not going to come, right? It, but it, but it tries to make you think that, and so I think having an opening scene where it's a funeral kind of implies that there's like this inherent stakes of somebody's going to die, who is going to die. That's one way to do it. The other way you can do it, which I think maybe would fit the tone a little bit more, is you open with Norman going to go get his brother out of jail Paul the first time with the when he was defending the Indian woman he was on a date with. You don't have to show that he was in there for the Indian woman, but you can show him going to jail, getting called by the police and going down there and kind of introducing that his brother is going to go off the rails. Like what is he in trouble for? How big of a problem is it? But I think if they had done something very early on, I'm talking in the first few scenes to like introduce some level of stakes and danger that's coming. I think that would have done a good job of introducing some, again, some element of stakes to people that otherwise maybe didn't get invested early on. Cause for all accounts at the beginning of the film, it's just a story about two brothers growing up, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. really get into the meat of the problem that Paul has until about an
1: hour into the into the movie. So, I I don't know. I I actually, you know, I love this movie so much. I didn't even think about rewrites. And I will say this a, a couple points. One, You know, there's some movies that open with a funeral, like your uh, Remember the Titans. I think this movie's kind of unique, and if you've seen it a couple times, maybe this is lost on you, but I truly believe the first time you watch this movie, once the story gets going, and it's obvious that Norman is the protagonist, that, like, an older Norman is the one narrating it, I don't think the first time you watch this movie, I think you see the opening scene with the old man on the river, and I think the movie begins and you totally forget about that guy. So when it circles back to him at the end and everything comes full circle, it's a great payoff because it's a really beautiful like way to tie it together. And I truly believe by the time that scene rolls around, like you had kind of forgotten that's where the movie begins. Or, kind of like Stand By I Me. Be...
0: Stand By Me kind of yeah. does the same thing.
1: Yeah, man. Um, and I don't know. I think for people who need a little bit more sensory overload like they need some gunfights or explosions and stuff that like maybe this movie doesn't do it for you for me it, it 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 does everything i think that it is i i will concede that maybe some of the dialogue is corny but other than that like i man i don't know how much i'd change about this i think it's it's really well done and the narration yeah. that puts everything together at the end just absolutely kills i would be interested to get your thoughts on kind of that 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 one line eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it what does that mean
0: i think that the river is a metaphor for life and how life like kind of follows one track of time and that you know people go throughout life with different paths but eventually we all die and we all you know we all end up ashes um i know it's i know it's very very you know, meta and kind of melancholy and almost dark. But that, that is kind of like what happens. Like these, they might go through different, uh, tributaries and different strains. So they all end up in the same spot, you know, um, wherever n- life took Norman, wherever life took Paul, they ended up in the same spot.
1: Right. Which is, you know, where we all end up. I think that you, you're on to something there. I think that this movie kind of like how you mentioned it may have a general theme, but it's got a couple sub themes or subtopics Running off through it, I think that one of them is obviously these these boys becoming men. Um, they both arrived at the place that their dad hoped that they would. They became men in different ways. Like I said, Norman's you know manliness is very traditional. It's done against the backdrop that he is invested in these different institutions, you know, like family and the church and stuff, whereas Paul's manhood is kind of defined as the fact that he goes against those establishments. I also think that the river has m- almost multiple metaphors. Like, you know, this movie itself, similar to a river, like on the, when, when these fishermen go to the river and they and they study it and they look at the water, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. And I think that's very similar to the story itself. Like you could watch this one time, maybe it doesn't do it for you, but man, if you really yeah. dig into it, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. Ultimately, the river, I think, Kind of represents the natural world that these kids grew up in and that they cut their teeth against. And on another level, like kind of to your point, this river that meanders, you know, over rocks and canyons through the Montel- Montana wilderness symbolizes like the the arc of human life. So it's just it's a really really beautiful movie, man. It's a work of art.
0: Yeah, a work of art is a good way to put it because it is um, it's very literary the fact that there's not, like, a clear climax, clear resolution, a clear new equilibrium. The new equilibrium um, is that Paul died, right? And um, it is a movie that I can de- I can definitely see where... I think this is a movie that writers would enjoy. I think fathers, sons, obviously Fly fishers, people, like, as I said earlier, people involved in sport and have sports connected to them can really relate to some of this, but there's definitely an audience that I think won't love this movie if you are looking to just turn something on like if you're if you're scrolling through netflix which is currently on right now and you're thinking about movies that you haven't seen before that are kind of classics and you're kind of just looking to turn something on and flip through your phone, you're not going to like this movie. You're just not. Like, it it requires more attention than that. Um, You know, there there are other movies that I think also kind of fit that bill. We talked about Stand By Me. I think Stand By Me is kind of similar to this film. I was actually thinking about, like, Taxi Driver. I think Taxi Driver is a completely different film, but it also fits that bill of movies that are incredible and really well-written and subtle, but if you're not really paying
1: attention, you're going to hate
0: them because they're not doesn't doesn't ride highs very high so
1: a term i always use is this is a great rainy day movie so like i've got a couple cat i'll either call something like a popcorn movie or a rainy day movie i think the point you're trying to make is that the plot line it's not flat i think all the parts are there that lead up to paul's death i just think that it's done in a little more realistic and static way it's not it doesn't hit the usual story beats that we expect um and a lot of that's because like. Despite the fact that they live in this really violent environment, it doesn't show us a lot of that violence firsthand. And we're just not given that kind of like buildup that you particularly suspect. Like, I think the first time you watch this, the ending feels a little anticlimactic. But by the time it's all said and done and we cut back to the old man and they tie off with that beautiful narration, like it hits home really well.
0: Yeah, because otherwise it would be, uh, they'd hint at Paul's troubles like 30 minutes into the film. And then by at least minute 50, It would be the essential plot and then from minute 50 on to about one hour 40 minutes that's all they'd be concerning themselves with is paul's troubles right and it doesn't do that um it does start hinting at them at 50 minutes that's that's about the time when he gets thrown in jail because he defends the woman right but there's other side plots and things and it it really it kind of reminds you of paul's troubles a few times as and as it escalates into the scene with uh they go visit lola's but
1: I heard a criticism of this movie that it has a lot of subplots that, like, don't go anywhere. And I don't know if I agree with that. Like, take Neil, for example. I think that's one of the plot lines that people point out. They're like, man, they kind of introduced this brother-in-law. And, like, what purpose does this really serve? Well, like, in this story, it, it talks about how the father, you know, religion and fly fishing are, like, inseparable. And, like, a man achieves grace through art. And the character, like Neil, is really a character to grade themselves against where like Norman and Paul go about this their own way. But then you've got Neil who, despite drinking and sleeping around, like also refuses to learn how to fish. He has no grace. And so in Norman and Paul's opinion, this is a- akin to basically refusing to be a man or like live righteously. I wouldn't
0: get it. I wouldn't get rid of the Neil stuff. Um, I think it's a perfect example of fun in games. I will say though, that you can remove Neil and, clear 15 to 20 minutes of the runtime and you'd be fine but i but it's such a fun scene that i wouldn't it's a fun collection of scenes i wouldn't get rid of it but i'm saying you absolutely could it just wouldn't hint on that portion of the of the lesson right
1: right so man great uh, what do you you got are you gonna
0: gonna call it a 10
1: i dude okay so it's not a 10 i'll i'll put it this way i'm gonna give it a nine out of ten
0: that's fair i think that's fair i think that's totally fair um as i said earlier i think it's kind of i wouldn't even call it an artsy film but it 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 does have enough nuance in it to where i would not be surprised at all if like your average writer your average like film buff likes this movie like a full point higher than your average fan your average viewer i could see it i could see your average moviegoer you know intelligent f- film viewers walking out being like, uh, eh, it was pretty good. I'm going to give it a six and just not really thinking about it. Um, whereas very few writers, authors, screenplay writers, I think would walk out of this giving it anything lower than a seven. And part of that is because the, the novel is so good and it, a lot of the best stuff, particularly the, the narration comes from the novel, Right. It's just like Stand By Me with Stephen King where the the stuff that comes from the novella is great. Some of the stuff that doesn't come from the novella is not as good. Um, so I, I have it as an 8. Um, I, I kind of hinted at the stuff that I would have liked to see. I think they should have set some of the higher stakes a little bit earlier. There's a few, again not many, there's like two scenes where I think the dialogue is a little bit weak. The acting is phenomenal. Cinematography obviously is phenomenal. They won an award for it. Um it's, it's a really
1: solid movie, obviously. You know what I would can, kind of compare it to? Uh, this maybe is an odd comparison, but um, you compared it to Stand By Me. This movie kind of, in a way, reminds me of The Wonder Years. Like, it's yeah. that type of melancholy. It's that type of, like, if even down to, like, some of the dialogue maybe corny, but, like, everything else, it's just off on all burners. I think, not to be repetitive, but if you're listening to this podcast, if you are a writer get on netflix and watch this movie you'll absolutely love it if you like crimes of grindelwald or just like <laughs> need a bunch of action and cgi just avoid this because like you will not like it but this is a writer's movie if you like crimes um, of
0: grindelwald you're probably not listening to this podcast past five minutes because yeah, i talked about you how probably checked out pretty buns. early on it's complete buns yes. I mean dude the last jedi the the skywalker returns or whatever those shitty star Wars, like the last two star wars films are called like the cgi fest with cool action that has like complete shit writing like i'm i don't like it we're not gonna like it on this podcast we're probably not gonna talk about it as a full episode so uh yeah a river runs through it is is really good uh i think it was in our draft for top screenplays of the 90s was it not I think so. Yeah, I think it made the cut. Yeah, so it's up it there, should. man. I mean, it's again. It was nominated for best adapted screenplay. In hindsight, it probably should have won over Howard's Run. Was it called Howard's Run? How-
1: Howard's End. We've got to see this at some point. I, I really don't want to watch it. Just reading the synopsis, but yeah, Howard's End has popped up enough. It's 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 come up on the podcast just as much as Ezra Miller. We can't ignore it Tootsie. much longer. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Two. We can just do a two for Tootsie and Howard's end, yeah and we'll invite John Truby on and see how how he feels about him. Yeah, we know his ass loves some Tootsie, dude.
0: He's all about Tootsie, uh, which which leads me to believe. I wonder. I bet he loves Mrs. Doubtfire, if that's the case. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe, and tell two friends because we greatly appreciate that. And give us a rating for for that matter. I. Uh, I kind of do those out of order this week, but uh, I got to work on my closing. Anyways, this is Sam. This is Novel Discourse. And he's Webb. And this is Web. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he's there, too. He's still there. I'm here. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Peace. Adios.